Chapter 1, Part 2 of Adventures of the Infallible Godal by Frederick Irving Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Infallible Godal, Part 2. Armiston and his wife went to Maine for the summer without leaving their address. Along in the early fall he received by registered mail, forwarded by his trusted servant at the townhouse, a package containing the envelope he had addressed to J. Borden Benson, the Towers. Furthermore, it contained the dollar bills he had dispatched to that individual, together with his note which he had signed Martin Brown. And across the note, in the most insulting manner, was written in coarse, greasy, blue pencil lines, Damnable impertinence! I'll cane you the first time I see you! And no more. That was enough, of course, quite sufficient. In the same mail came a note from Armiston's publishers, saying that his story, The White Ruby, was scheduled for publication in the October number, out September 25th. This cheered him up. He was anxious to see it in print. Late in September they started back to town. "'Aha!' he said as he sat reading his paper in the parlor car. He had caught this train by the various tip of its tail and upset the running schedule in the act. Ah, I see my genial friend J. Borden Benson is in town, contrary to custom at this time of year. Life must be a great bore to that snob. A few days after arriving in town he received a package of advance copies of the magazine containing his story, and he read the tale of the White Ruby as if he had never seen it before. On the cover of one copy, which he was to dispatch to his grumpy benefactor, J. Borden Benson, he wrote, Charm to be caned, call any time. See Contents. Oliver Armiston. On another he wrote, Dear Mrs. Wentworth, see how simple it is to pierce your fancied security. He dispatched these two magazines with a feeling of glee. No sooner had he done so, however, than he learned that the Wentworths had not yet returned from Newport. The magazine would be forwarded to them, no doubt. The Wentworths' absence made the tale all the better, in fact, for in his story Armiston had insisted on Godall's breaking into the castle and solving the mystery of the keyless door during the season when the chateau was closed and strung with a perfect network of burglar alarms connecting with the gendarmerie in the nearby village. That was the 25th day of September. The magazine was put on sale that morning. On the 26th day of September, Armiston bought a late edition of the afternoon paper from a leather-lunged boy who was hawking extra in the street. Across the first page the headlines met his eye. Robbery and murder in the Wentworth Mansion. Private watchman summoned by burglar alarm at ten o'clock this morning finds servant with skull crushed on floor of mysterious steel-doored room. Murdered man's pockets filled with rare jewels. Police believe he was murdered by Confederate who escaped. The Wentworth butler, stone deaf, had just returned from Newport to open house at time of murder. It was ten o'clock that night, when an automobile drew up at Armiston's door, and a tall man with a square jaw, square shoes, and a square mustache alighted. This was Deputy Police Commissioner Burns, a professional detective whom the new administration had drafted into the city's service from the government's secret service. Burns was admitted, and as he advanced to the middle of the drawing-room, without so much as a nod to the ghost-like Armiston, who stood shivering before him, he drew a package of papers from his pocket. "'I presume you have seen all the evening papers,' he said, spitting his words through his half-closed teeth with so much show of 
personal malice that Armiston, never a brave man, in spite of his godall, cowered before him. Armiston shook his head dumbly at first, but at length he managed to say, "'Not all, no.' The deputy commissioner, with much deliberation, drew out the latest edition and handed it to Armiston without a word. It was the evening news. The first page was divided down its entire length by a black line. On one side, and occupying four columns, was a word-for-word -word reprint of Armiston's story, The White Ruby. On the other, the facts in deadly parallel, was a graphic account of the robbery and murder at the home of Billy Wentworth. The parallel was glaring in the intensity of its dumb accusation. On the one side was the theoretical Godal, working his masterly way of crime, step by step, and on the other side was the plagiarism of Armiston's story, following the intricacies of the mastermind with copybook accuracy. The editor, who must have been a genius in his way, did not accuse. He simply placed the fiction and the fact side by side and let the reader judge for himself. It was masterly. If, as the law says, the mind that conceives, the intelligence that directs a crime, is more guilty than the very hand that acts, then Armiston here was both thief and murderer. Thief because the white ruby had actually been stolen. Mrs. Billy Bentworth, rushed to the city by special train, attended by doctors and nurses, now confirmed the story of the theft of the ruby. Murderer because in the story Godal had for once in his career stooped to murder as the means, and had triumphed over the dead body of his confederate, scorning in his joy at possessing the white ruby, the paltry diamonds, pearls, and red rubies with which his confederate had crammed his pockets. Armiston seized the police officer by his lapels. "'The butler!' he screamed. "'The butler! Yes, the butler! Quick, or he will have flown!' Burns gently disengaged the hands that had grasped him. "'Too late,' he said. "'He has already flown.' Sit down and quiet your nerves. We need your help. You are the only man in the world who can help us now. When Armiston was himself again, he told the whole tale, beginning with his strange meeting with J. Borden Benson on the train, and ending with his accepting Mrs. Wentworth's challenge to have Godall break into the room and steal the white ruby. Burns nodded over the last part. He had already heard that from Mrs. Wentworth, and there was the autographed copy of the magazine to show for it. You say that... J. Borden Benson told you of this white ruby in the first place? Armiston again told, in great detail, the circumstances, all the humor now turned into grim tragedy. That is strange, said the ex-secret service chief. Did you leave your purse at home, or was your pocket picked? I thought at first that I had absent-mindedly left it at home. Then I remembered having paid the chauffeur out of the roll of bills, so my pocket must have been picked. "'What kind of a looking man was this Benson?' "'You must know him,' said Armiston. "'Yes, I know him, but I want to know what he looked like to you. I want to find out how he happened to be so handy when you were in need of money.' Armiston described the man minutely. The deputy sprang to his feet. "'Come with me,' he said, and they hurried into the automobile and soon drew up in front of the towers. Five minutes later they were ushered into the magnificent apartment of J. Borden Benson. That worthy was in his bath, preparing to retire for the night. "'I don't catch the name,' Armiston and the deputy heard him cry through the bathroom door to his valet. "'Mr. Oliver Armiston, sir.' "'Ah, he has come for his caning, I expect. I'll be there directly.' 
He did not wait to complete his toilet, so eager was he to see the author. He strode out in a brilliant bathrobe, and in one hand he carried an alpenstock. His eyes glowed in anger. But the sight of Burns surprised him as well as halted him. "'Do you mean to say this is J. Borden Benson?' cried Armiston to Burns, rising to his feet and pointing at the man. "'The same,' said the deputy. "'I swear to it. I know him well. I take it he is not the gentleman who paid your car fare to New Haven.' "'Not by a hundred pounds!' exclaimed Armiston as he surveyed the huge bulk of the elephantine clubman. The forced realization that the stranger he had hitherto regarded as a benefactor was not J. Borden Benson at all, but someone who had merely assumed that worthy's name while he was playing the conceited author as an easy dupe, did more to quiet Armiston's nerves than all the sedatives his doctor had given him. It was a badly dashed popular author who sat down with a deputy commissioner in his library an hour later. He would gladly have consigned Godal to the bottom of the sea, but it was too late. Godal had taken the trick. "'How do you figure it?' Armiston asked, turning to the deputy. "'The beginning is simple enough. It is the end that bothers me,' said the official. Your bogus J. Borden Benson is, of course, the brains of the whole combination. Your infernal Godal has told us just exactly how this crime was committed. Now your infernal Godal must bring the guilty parties to justice. It was plain to be seen that the police official hated Godal worse than poison, and feared him, too. Why not look in the rogues' gallery for this man who befriended me on the train? The chief laughed. For the love of heaven, Armiston, do you who pretend to know all about scientific thievery think for a moment that the man who took your measure so easily is of the class of crooks who get their pictures in the rogues' gallery? Talk sense! I can't believe you when you say he picked my pocket. I don't care whether you believe me or not. He did, or one of his pals did. It all amounts to the same thing, don't you see? First he wanted to get acquainted with you. Now the best way to get into your good graces was to put you unsuspectingly under obligation to him, so he robs you of your money. For what I have seen of you in the past few hours, it must have been like taking candy from a child. Then he gets next to you in line. He pretends that you were merely some troublesome toad in his path. He gives you money for your ticket to get you out of his way so he won't miss the train. His train. Of course his train is your train. He puts you in a position where you have to make advances to him. And then, grinning to himself all the time at your conceit and gullibility, he plays you through your pride, your Godal. Think of the creator of the great Godal falling for a trick like that. Burns' last words were the acme of biting sarcasm. You admit yourself that he's too clever for you to put your hands on. And then, went on Burns, not heeding the interruption, he invites you to lunch and tells you what he wants you to do for him and you follow his lead like a sheep at the tail of the bellwether. Great Scott, Armiston! I would give a year's salary for one hour's conversation with that man. Armiston was beginning to see the part this queer character had played, but he was in a semi-hysterical state, and like a woman in such a position, he wanted a calm mind to tell him the whole thing in words of one syllable, to verify his own dread. "'What do you mean?' he asked. "'I don't quite follow. "'You say he tells me what he wants me to do?' Burns shrugged his shoulders in disgust. "'Then, as if resigned to the task before him, "'he began his explanation. "'Here, man, I will draw a diagram for you. 
This gentleman friend of yours, we shall call him John Smith for convenience, wants to get possession of this white ruby. He knows that you are in the keeping of Mrs. Billy Wentworth. He knows you know Mrs. Wentworth and have access to her house. He knows that she stole this bauble and is frightened to death all the time. Now John Smith is a pretty clever chap. He handled the great Armiston like hot putty. He had exhausted his resources. He is baffled and needs help. What does he do? He reads the stories about the great Godal. Confidently, Mr. Armiston, I will tell you that I think your great Godal is mush. But that is neither here nor there. If you sell him as a gold brick, all right. But Mr. John Smith is struck by the wonderful ingenuity of this Godal. He says, Ha! I will get Godal to tell me how to get this gem. So he gets hold of yourself, sir, and persuades you that you are playing a joke on him by getting him to rant and rave about the great Godal. Then, and here the villain enters, he says, Here is a thing the great Godal cannot do. I dare him to do it. He tells you about the gem, whose very existence is quite fantastic enough to excite the imagination of the wonderful Armiston. And by clever suggestion, he persuades you to lay the plot at the home of Mrs. Wentworth. And all the time you are chuckling to yourself, thinking what a rare joke you are going to have on J. Borden Benson when you send him an autographed copy and show him that he was talking to the distinguished genius all the time and didn't know it. That's the whole story, sir. Now wake up. Burns sat back in his chair and regarded Armiston with the smile a pedagogue bestows on a refractory boy whom he has just flogged soundly. "'I will explain further,' he continued. "'You haven't visited the house yet. You can't. Mrs. Wentworth, for all she is in bed with four dozen hot water bottles, would tear you limb from limb if you went there. And don't you think for a minute she isn't able to? That woman is a vixen.' Armiston nodded gloomily. The very thought of her now sent him into a cold sweat. "'Mr. Godall, the obliging,' continued the deputy, "'notes one thing to begin with. The house cannot be entered from the outside, so it must be an inside job. How can this be accomplished? Well, there is the deaf butler. Why is he deaf? Godall ponders. Ha! He has it. The Wentworths are so dependent on servants that they must have them round at all times. The butler is the one who is constantly about them. They are worried to death by their possession of this white ruby. Their house has been raided from the inside a dozen times. Nothing is taken, mind you. They suspect their servants. This thing haunts them, but the woman will not give up this foolish bauble. So she has, as her major domo, a man who cannot understand a word in any language unless he is looking at the speaker and is in a bright light. He can only understand the lips. Handy, isn't it? In a dull light, or with their backs turned, they can talk about anything they want to. This is a jewel of a butler. But, added Burns, one day a man calls. He is a lawyer. He tells the butler he is heir to a fortune, fifty thousand dollars. He must go to Ireland to claim it. Your friend on the train, he is the man, of course, sends your butler to Ireland. So this precious butler is lost. They must have another. Only a deaf one will do. And they find just the man they want, quite accidentally, you understand. Of course, it is Godall, with forged letters, saying he has been in service in great houses. Presto, the great Godall himself is now the butler. It is simple enough to play deaf. You say this is fiction. Let me tell you this. Six weeks ago, the Wentworths actually changed butlers. 
that hasn't come out in the papers yet. Armiston, who had listened to the deputy's review of his story listlessly, now sat up with a start. He suddenly exclaimed gleefully, But my story didn't come out until two days ago. Ah, yes, but you forget that it has been in the hands of your publishers for three months. A man who was clever enough to dupe the great Armiston wouldn't shirk the task of getting hold of a proof of that story. Armiston sank deeper into his chair. Once Godal got inside the house, the rest was simple. He corrupted one of the servants. He opened the steel-lined door with a flame of an oxacetylene torch. As you say in your story, that flame cut steel like wax. He didn't have to bother about the lock. He simply cut the door down. Then he put his confederate in good humor by telling him to fill his pockets with the diamonds and other junk in the safe, which he obligingly opens. One thing bothers me, Armiston. How did you find out about that infernal contraption that killed the confederate? Armiston buried his face in his hands. Burns rudely shook him. Come, he said. You murdered that man, though you are innocent. Tell me how. Is this the third degree? said Armiston. It looks like it said the deputy grimly, as he nodded his stubby mustache. Armiston drew a long breath, like one who realizes how hopeless is his situation. He began to speak in a low tone. All the while the deputy glared at Godal's inventor with his accusing eye. When I was sitting at the treasure room with the Wentworths, and my wife, playing auction bridge, I dismissed the puzzle of the door as easily solved by means of the brazing flame. The problem was not to get into the house or into this room, but to find the ruby. It was not in the safe. No, of course not. I suppose your friend on the train was kind enough to tell you that. He had probably looked there himself. Gad, he did tell me that, come to think of it. Well, I studied that room. I was sure that that white ruby, if it really existed, was within ten feet of me. I examined the floor, the ceiling, the walls. No result. "'But,' he said, shivering, as if in a draft of cold air, "'there was a chest in that room made of Lombardy oak.' The harassed author buried his face in his hands. "'Oh, this is terrible,' he moaned. "'Go on,' said the deputy in his colorless voice. "'I can't. I tell it all in the story. Heaven help me.' "'I know you tell it all in the story,' came the rasping voice of Burns. "'But I want you to tell it to me. I want to hear it from your own lips, as Armiston, you understand, whose devilry has just killed a man, not as your damnable Godal. The chest was not solid oak, went on Armiston. It was solid steel covered with oak to disguise it. How did you know that? I had seen it before. Where? In Italy, fifteen years ago, in a decayed castle back through the Soledini Pass from Lugano. It was the possession of an old nobleman, a friend of a friend of mine. Huh, grunted the deputy. And then, well, how did you know it was the same one? By the inscription carved on the front. It was, but I have told this all in print already. Why need I go over it all again? I want to hear it again, from your own lips. Maybe there are some points you did not tell in print. Go on. The inscription was Sanctus Dominus. The deputy smiled grimly. Very fitting, I should say. Praise the Lord, with the most diabolical engine of destruction I have ever seen. And then, said Armiston, there was the owner's name, Arno Petroni. 
queer name, that. Yes, said the deputy dryly. How did you hit on this as the receptacle for the white ruby? If it were the same one I saw in Lugano, and I felt sure it was, it was certain death to attempt to open it. That is, for one who did not know how. Such machines were common enough in the Middle Ages. There was an obvious way to open it. It was meant to be obvious. To open it that way was inevitable death. It released tremendous springs that crushed anything within a radius of five feet. You saw that? I did, said the deputy, and he shuddered as he spoke. Then, bringing his fierce face within an inch of the cowering Armiston, he said, You knew the secret spring by which that safe could be opened as simply as a shoe-box, eh? Armiston nodded his head. But Godall did not, he said. Having recognized this terrible chest, went on the author, I guessed it must be the hiding-place of the jewel for two reasons. In the first place, Mrs. Wentworth had avoided showing it to us. She passed it by as a mere bit of curious furniture. Second, it was too big to go through the door or any one of the windows. They must have gone to the trouble of taking down the wall to get that thing in there. Something of a task, too, considering it weighs about two tons. You didn't bring out that point in your story, didn't I? I fully intended to. Maybe, said the deputy, watching his man sharply. It so impressed your friend who paid your car fare to New Haven that he clipped it out of the manuscript when he borrowed it. There is no humor in this affair, sir, if you will pardon me, said Armiston. That is quite true. Go ahead. The rest you know. Godall, in my story, the thief in real life, had to sacrifice a life to open that chest. So he corrupted a small kitchen servant, filling his pockets with those other jewels, and told him to touch the spring. You murdered that man in cold blood, said the deputy, rising and pacing the floor. The poor deluded devil from the looks of what's left of him never let out a whimper, never knew what hit him. Here, take some more of this brandy. Your nerves are in a bad way. What I can't make out is this, said Armiston after a time. There was a million dollars worth of stuff in that room that could have been put into a quart measure. Why did not this thief, who was willing to go to all the trouble to get the white ruby, take some of the jewels? Nothing is missing beside the white ruby, as I understand it, is there? No, said the deputy, not a thing. Here comes a messenger boy. For Mr. Armiston? Yes, he said to the entering maid. The boy handed him a package for which the deputy signed. This is for you, he said, turning to Armiston as he closed the door. Open it. When the package was open, the first object to greet their eyes was a roll of bills. "'This grows interesting,' said Burns. He counted the money. Thirty-nine dollars. Your friend evidently is returning the money he stole from you at the station. What does he have to say for himself? I see there is a note.' He reached over and took the paper out of Armiston's hands. It was an ordinary bond stationery, with no identifying marks of any consequence. The note was written in bronze ink in a careful copper-plate hand, very small and precise. It read, Most Excellency, sir, herewith most honored dollars I am dispatching complete. Regretful extremely of sad blood being not to be prevented, except trifle from true friend. That was all. There is a jeweler's box, said Burns. Open it. Inside the box was a lozenge-shaped diamond about the size of a little fingernail. It hung from a tiny bar of silver, highly polished and devoid of ornament. On the back, under the clasp pin, were several microscopic characters. 
There were several obvious clues to be followed. The messenger boy, the lawyers who induced the deaf butler to go to Ireland on what later proved to be a wild goose chase, the employment agency through which the new butler had been secured, and so on. But all of these avenues proved too respectable to yield results. Deputy Burns had early arrived at his own conclusions, by virtue of the knowledge he had gained as government agent. Yet to appease the popular indignation, he kept up a desultory search for the criminal. It was natural that Armiston should think of his friend Johansen at this juncture. Johansen possessed that wonderful oriental capacity of aloofness, which we Westerners are so ready to term indifference or lack of curiosity. No, I thank you, said Johansen. I'd rather not mix in. The pleadings of the author were in vain. His words fell on deaf ears. If you will not lift a hand because of your friendship for me, said Armiston bitterly, then think of the law. Surely there is something due justice when both robbery and bloody murder have been committed. Justice, cried Johansen in scorn. Justice, you say. My friend, if you steal from me and I reclaim by force that which is mine, is that injustice? If you cannot see the idea behind that, surely, then, I cannot explain it to you. Answer one question, said Armiston. Have you any idea who the man was I met on the terrain? For your own peace of mind, yes. As a clue leading to where you so glibly term justice, pshaw, tonight's sundown would be easier for you to catch than this man if I know him. Mind you, Armiston, I do not know, but I believe— Here's what I believe. In a dozen courts of kings and petty princelings that I know of in the East, there are Westerners retained as advisers. Fiscal agents, they usually call them. Usually they are American or English or occasionally German. Now I ask you a question. Say that you were in the hire of a heathen prince. And a grievous wrong were done that prince, say, by a thoughtless woman who had not the least conception of the beauty of an idea she had outraged. Merely for the possession of a bauble, valueless to her except to appease vanity, she ruthlessly rode down a superstition that was as holy to this prince as your own belief in Christ is to you. What would you do? Without waiting for Armiston to answer, Johansen went on. I know a man. You say this man you met on the train had wonderful hands, did he not? Yes, I thought so. Armiston, I know a man who would not sit idly by and smile to himself over the ridiculous fuss occasioned by the loss of an imperfect stone, off-color, badly cut, and everything else. Neither would he laugh at the superstition behind it. He would say to himself, This superstition is older by several thousand years than I or my people. And this man, whom I know, is brave enough to right that wrong himself if his underlings failed. I follow, said Armiston dully. But, said Johansen, leaning forward and tapping the author on the knee, but the task proves too big for him. What did he do? He asked the cleverest man in the world to help him, and Godal helped him. That, said Johansen, interrupting Armiston with a raised finger, is the story of the white ruby. The story of the white ruby, you see, is something infinitely finer than mere vulgar robbery and murder, as the author of the infallible Godal conceived it. Johansen said a great deal more. In the end he took the lozenge-shaped diamond pendant and put the glass on the silver bar, that his friend might see the inscription on the back. 
He told him what the inscription signified. Brother of a king. And furthermore, how few men alive possessed the capacity for brotherhood. I think, said Armiston, as he was about to take his leave, that I will travel in the straits this winter. If you do, said Johansen, I earnestly advise you to leave your Godal and his decoration at home. End of the Infallible Godal, Part 2